Job chapter 38. That's where we turn this morning again. Job 38. I'm going to read just the first few verses of here just to remind us what in the world is going on here. Job 38, verses 1 through 3. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you make me know. And so Yahweh himself is speaking. Yahweh, God, known by his wonderful personal name, is speaking. Yahweh, his name has not appeared since chapter 12. At least, uh, perhaps there's some textual questions about that use by Job. But it's used a lot of times in chapters 1 and 2. It's going to be used a lot of times in chapter 42 when Yahweh is speaking and, and confronting. But he is answering Job out of the whirlwind. Notice he is he's speaking. He didn't just come in, a, in an ominous kind of whirlwind storm kind of situation and, and be all frightening and everything. He came in that kind of a situation or condition and yet he spoke to Job. Some people uh, question the fact. I think some people would suggest, no, Job, excuse me, Yahweh is speaking to Elihu, this man who spoke for chapters 32 to 37. And that, that when, this per, when God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's talking about Elihu. Well, I don't think that's the case. I think Elihu is actually speaking on behalf of God and representing God's perspective on these things. And it says, by the way, Yahweh answered Job. And Job is really the only focus of God's attention during these whole two cycles of speeches from chapters 38 to 41. Yahweh is speaking right to Job. And even this question, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job repeats that question and applies it to himself. You can read about that in chapter 42. So Job is the one who's being spoken to directly. This is not Whereas Elihu, I think, could be, could be regarded as a John the Baptist figure, an Elijah figure who was going before the coming of Yahweh. John, of course, came before Jesus, uh, Yeshua. And now Elihu has come before Yahweh himself speaks directly to Job out of this whirlwind, out of this, this whether a, a windstorm or just a storm itself, and is speaking so many things. He is answering Job because Job had said so many different times, where is God? And I want him to answer me. I want him to speak to me. I want him to give an account. I want him to either acquit me or show me where I'm wrong. And so God has come. Okay, I'll answer your request, but not in the way that you expect, not the way that you demanded. I'm going to show myself strong. But he does come. Yahweh does come out of concern for his servant. He will call Job, his servant, several times, already did it in chapters 1 and 2, he's going to say it several times in chapter 42, but he is not feeling under the gun. God himself is not feeling that he has been coerced into this response to Job. He comes in a, in a kind, gracious fashion to confront Job in his ignorance, but also to comfort him, to console him, and to confirm him in his faith and say, your faith is not unfounded, Job. You've put your faith in me Keep that faith in me. You've accused me of, of improperly managing the world. Well, let me just tell you and ask you about how, how you take care of the world and how you have structured it in all your wonderful years of knowledge and experience. And tell me, how do you care for this? And how do you maintain this? And how, you know, tell me your secrets. Tell me about all these things. You make me know about these things. And John, excuse me, Yahweh is not being... I don't think sarcastic or rude or humiliating to Job, but definitely humbling him, saying, hey, there's one God and you're not him, right? I'm God. You leave things to me. Don't you accuse me of doing things wrongly. 
And so all these questions, he has so many different questions here in uh, chapters 38 to 41, anywhere from 67 in the English Standard Version up to 84 in the King James Version. And depending on how things go, you can see. But God asks lots of questions of Job. And again, to show him much more through a question than God could or would through just general statements that I do this and I do this and I do this and I have done this and I know this and I know where this is. But he asked questions, hey, Job, do you know these different things, these kinds of questions that, that God answers or God asks? Can you, Job, or who has done this or where is this or all these different things that, that Yahweh is speaking as a wise teacher asking questions? We think question asking as a teaching device came from Socrates, right? Socratic pedagogy and all that kind of thing. But God is the one who's speaking questions and bringing Job really to task for his ignorance, for his foolishness, for his, uh, his challenging God with, with out of ignorance, just doesn't understand it. And even we'll see it in chapter 40, how God says, you have, in your effort to justify yourself, do you therefore say, I'm wrong? You find fault with me? Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty kind of thing? And so it's wrong for us to challenge God in that way. Chapters 38 to 41 evidence two different speeches from Yahweh, as we've looked at. I'm kind of rehearsing some things. But chapters uh, 38 and 39 really focus on God's omniscience. You think, omniscience? What in the world is that? Well, it's just a fancy way to say he knows everything. Omniscience. He just knows every possible thing. And then chapters 41 and 40. 40 and 41 talk about God's omnipotence or omnipotence or just all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He can do everything according to his character, which is, it's good. He is powerful. So both he knows all things and he's able to do all things. Whereas, hey, Job, do you know this? Do you know anything about this? Hey, Job, in your power, can you do this? Can you maintain or manage the the uh, behemoth, behemoth, can you manage the leviathan? Can you direct him and, and kind of pull him around with a uh, hook in his nose and, or a chain on his nose and do, you know, can, he, can you make him plow your field for you? God can. God can. God knows everything and he can do everything. We saw, and again, this is review, we saw in uh, the first bit of chapter 38 that God is speaking about the physical world. He's talking about just the, the non-organic stuff going on. He's talking about the, the uh, earth. He's talking about the uh, foundation of the earth. He's talking about the bases of the earth, the cornerstone and different things. He is talking about the boundaries of the sea, the rising of the sun. So he's talking about the majestic structure. How are things built? How did God build this in the first place? And then we saw last time the extreme scope. I mean, you go from the depths of the sea from the, the way down below there to the springs of the deep, springs of the sea or the recesses of the deep. Hey, Job, have you recently, tell me about your recent walk down there. How'd that go for you? What did you see down at the bottom of the sea? Or the gates of death, which are down, as, as God describes it here, at the bottom of the sea. And have you carefully considered the expanse of the earth? It seems to be the super, or not the supernatural, but the, the uh, subterranean. That's the word I was trying to get to. And so Job is challenged. Hey, do you know the extreme scope? Have you ever been to the, the depths of the sea? What about the horizons of heaven where light and darkness kind of uh, swap places? Do you know the way to where the light dwells? Darkness, where, where is its place? And, and can you uh, take it? Can you put the, the uh, just like he described the, uh, the sea kind of in a 
uh, infant, newborn kind of a situation, you know, wrapping in swaddling clothes and saying, you can come this far. He has that same kind of imagery regarding the heavens, the light and the darkness, and that God, he, sa- he says to the son, wake up in the morning and, uh, and then goes to bed at night, put the, puts it away, uh, verse uh, 19 and 20. Where, where's its place? Where's darkness's place that you may take it to its territory, you may discern the paths to its home? Can you do this? Well, certainly you can because the number of your days is great, right, Job? No. Well, in this last section, we see that he manages or maintains everything so precisely, not kind of helter-skelter, not saying, hey, I hope it rains there sometime, someplace, sometime today. No, he maintains absolute precise management, direction over every part of creation, even the path of a raindrop, even the channeling of lightning, even the thundering of of thunder. And he is the one who brings rain, not just on the places where humans are, because we think, well, we're pretty good, right? God is going to take care of us. Well, yeah, he does. But he takes care of places where there is no people, excuse me, where there are no people, no interaction, no entrepreneurial devices. God brings rain to places we don't even know about. And so, hey, Job, how's that for you? you? You're so selfish. You humans are so selfish. You want stuff where you want it. I'm going to send it where I want it, which is places where you guys aren't. And you think, well, that's not very nice. No, it's God's creation. You get the idea that God really likes what he did in creation. He said how many different times, it's good. And you think, well, isn't that kind of self-congratulatory? If we said it, about ourselves, you know, patting ourselves on the back because we just do all these wonderful things. Well, that would be, uh, you know, let another man praise you and not your own lips, right? We get that idea. But when God does it, I mean, who, God is good. He's great. It's not a proud, arrogant thing for God to extol his own. It's necessary for God to celebrate his goodness, his greatness, his creativity, his power, his all knowledge, all these things. It is necessary for God to extol his virtue, and therefore it's necessary for us as well. And so we see in these verses, again, God's precise management of the physical world. Beginning at verse 25, we're going to learn about water. And you think, water? What's all this deal about water? Well, uh, a very important deal about what God is doing in this world. Verse 25 reads, Who has cleft a conduit for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the growth of grass to sprout? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew from whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven who's given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the service of the deep is interlocked. God is putting himself on just absolute wonderful display because he says have you or who who does this who has cleft a conduit who has cut a channel for the flood and you think good grief cutting a channel now there was a king kind of a famous king a good king in the southern kingdom named hezekiah who did cut a channel for water through solid rock so he could bring the spring the gihon spring down to a pool inside the city gates and you can read about it in fact when you go to jerusalem you can walk through that it's called hezekiah's tunnel but god is making a conduit a channel for the flood uh, the one who who directs and you can understand it kind of two different ways either this flood is talking about the flood from heaven just tremendous rain coming down on the earth and God has set a, a, a sluice or a channel for the water to come exactly where he wants to go. 
Uh, one person said it's the path that the rain takes from the heavenly storehouses that we read about earlier in this chapter down to the ground. So it could be that that he's talking about a, a direct channel, and that's where the water comes, the, the, the flood waters come. Or it could be talking about the flood that comes up from the ground and that God, or the, the flood that is on the ground versus the, the water that's coming out of the sky. But God is the one who determines or directs all these things. He is the one who is able to bring a water that, do you remember we, we read earlier, uh, chapter, well, verses 22 and 23, that God has snow and hail that he has reserved from the time of distress for the day of war and battle. That's a time of destruction. But here he's bringing water, not for destruction, but for blessing. He's bringing even floodwaters can be useful. I uh, think of the Nile River was very much uh, the flood was necessary for the cultivation of crops in that, in that era. But God is the one who brings that inundating, that, that uh, flooding down of water, either from the sky or on the ground itself. And he has power over all these things. I mean, we can barely manage a flood when it comes. We can't call it down upon us. And he's going to talk about that idea here in just a little bit, calling down rain out of, the, out of the clouds. But he is the one who directs it exactly where he wants it to go, whether from the sky or on the face of the earth. We can't even barely contain a flood, not, not, not even thinking about uh, causing something like that. But God is the one who clefts or divides or cuts this place right through to where he wants it to be. He says, who has cleft a conduit or excuse me, a way for the thunderbolt? He is the one who brings this, literally the text says, a thunderbolt of voices, many voices coming through the, the thunderbolt, combination of, of the electrical you know, lightning and then the, the thunder that responds to or, or is produced by the lightning coming down. And he says, I make a way for that. We've seen earlier in this chapter about the one who, who takes a, a lightning bolt even by the hand and, and puts it down exactly where he wants it. And you think, the, the likelihood, how is the likelihood of, of, of getting struck by lightning is a lot more than winning the lottery. Take that as you will. But God is the one who directs exactly where that lightning bolt will go. And he has that absolute authority. We can never even imagine thinking about that. We, can, we get shocked by, by putting a little uh, finger in a, don't do this, this is not, don't try this at home. Uh, putting your finger in a light socket or in an electrical outlet, don't do that, hurts. But God is able to take lightning and put it exactly where he wants it to be, a way for the thunderbolt. Notice earlier in, in uh, Job's account, he said it himself, Job did, chapter 28, verse 26, he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt. He is able, I mean, just tremendous power to direct where a rainstorm, a thunderstorm can go and where the ensuing thunderbolts will go. And notice his purpose in this, verse 26, to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the growth of grass to sprout. God does use the elements, hail and snow and floods and all these things as definitely judgment but also kindness and, and love and care for things. He brings rain on a land without people. God loves his creation regardless of the, if there's people there or not. In fact, it's just tremendous as you go hiking in various places, whether in the desert, there's wonderful flowers, little small flowers on the, on the desert floor or on a mountaintop or along whatever, and you think nobody else is going to see this while this little flower is alive. God sees it, and God made it, and God delights in it. And he takes care of these things. Again, the precise management, maintenance of the entire physical world is in God's hand. He brings rain on a land without people. 
God is interested not just in his human beings. He's interested in all kinds of situations on the earth. And he's going to change uh, uh, topics, I guess, or, or categories of thought from the physical world, you know, rain and cosmos and different things. And then he's going to talk about animals and how he cares so intimately, so intricately for animals. At the end of chapter 38 and the chapter 40, or 39, rather, he's going to focus on how God uh, cares for these things. But here God is sending rain on these things. It has nothing to do with man. Probably man is never going to go over there, humanity. And he's going to, to cover the ground with flowers. It's interesting, and you can see this not so much in this climate, but in Southern California, for example, very similar to the Middle East or Israel climate in that it doesn't rain much. There's a song about that, isn't there? Something doesn't rain in Southern California, something like that. Well, it rains, but not in the summertime, usually. And a similar situation there in Israel or, or around the Dead Sea and so forth where it rains in only a specific time of year. But when it does rain, wow, everything just kind of blossoms and, and turns green. And it's just so beautiful for a short time and then it dries out again. But even in that short time, God is glorified in the, the bringing on of rain to these places. Notice it says in verse 27, this is a waste and desolate land. This is a place that is, is not nice place to be in but god satisfies this 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 uh, destruction this devastation a place that has been i mean it's really a disaster it's just not a good place to be in fact this this word you described here as waste i think is how yeah waste is the same word that the modern state of israel refers to the or or remembers i was going to say celebrate but remembers the Holocaust. They call it Yom HaShoah, the day of the catastrophe or day of the, the uh, cataclysm, the Holocaust that they, that they remember and say never again, Yom HaShoah. The Arabs have a very similar day. It's not in connection with, with uh, the Holocaust. They remember a, a different catastrophe, and that is the destruction of the Arab uh, homeland in 1948. Now, a lot of history goes on. We don't want to delve into that. But the idea is it's not a good thing. The Holocaust, not a good thing. The destruction of Arab settlements, cities really in uh, 1948 and, and years around that, not good. And yet uh, God takes care of these places, a waste and a desolate land, uh, just a place where there, there's nothing. God satisfies and, and shows mercy to uh, these places and even makes the growth of grass or, or sends forth the, the, uh, the sprouts of grass to be a blessing to animals, to humans, of course, and he is the one who, who brings forth the, uh, the wonderful grass to be a blessing to people. He says, okay, I've, I've sent the rain, I have a conduit for the flood and the thunderbolt, but let me ask you this, where does the rain come from? Has the rain a father? What's this idea about having a father? Well, where does the, where does the water come from? How does this all come to be? How does, how does uh, water originate? Is there some kind of a... You know, there, there's so much in in pagan mythology and so forth that that talks about the the uh, rain comes because of of uh, a male god and a female god coming together, and that's the rain coming down. And they they would celebrate, and that way they would you know have sacrifices and call for this. And and they said, and God says, really, does the rain have a father? No, I'm the one. I'm the one who brings these forth. Has, who has begotten, again, that idea of, of generating, who's begotten the drops of dew? And then, well, we go from rain, which is, I mean, you can see the clouds coming, but then dew, where does the dew come from? I mean, relative humidity and all that. How do, who, who does that? We can't do that. 
humidity on earth. How does that even happen? God is the one who begots or, or begets these things. He's the one who brings these into fruition. He says in verse 29, from whose womb has come the ice? Again, this idea of generation, of, of bringing uh, things into existence. From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who's given it birth? Well, no, we can't do that. Job says, I don't know how that comes. I don't know where this is coming from. God, you know, you can do these things. God brings the, the ice on the earth. He brings the frost of heaven, or maybe you're, if you have a, like a King James or New King James, maybe it still says uh, hoar frost. Hoar frost has to do with a white uh, looking uh, a frost. It's different than ice. Ice usually is, is frozen liquid water that comes down, whereas frost is water, of course, but it comes from vapor, water vapor in the air that, that, that is like dew, but it freezes. The dew doesn't free, freeze, it's just water on the, on the ground. But here he's talking about these, this frost of heaven that God himself brings down and, and puts it on these different things. Now this, this statement in verse 30 is so tremendously scientific. You get the idea that God knows, knows what he's talking about. Verse 30 says, Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is interlocked. Okay, water, which is typically either a gaseous state or vapor, we're talking about mist, we're talking about dew, we're talking about uh, the, um, the uh, frost here. Water, how does that happen? How does water become hard like stone? You'd think, well, wait a minute, why, we drink water? I mean, sometimes we do this. One of the indications of when, did the, when was Job written, when did these things happen? I think it goes back to, because Job, the, the whole book of Job, talks more about frozen water, ice, snow, and hail, and those kinds of things, than any other book in the Bible. What I think that suggests is that this comes shortly after the Great Flood, in the time of Ice Age, when there, I mean, we're talking the Middle East, it doesn't get a lot of, of ice and snow. I mean, every now and again they do, but it doesn't get it like this. To celebrate this, but in the Ice Age, yes, so much of, of glacial activity and the temperature of the earth and so forth was, was different and affected. And so God describes water becoming hard like stone, something that, that we can testify to when you try to chew on ice. Well, don't do that either because your dentist will not like that. Don't recommend it. But even the surface of the deep is interlocked. You get this tremendous idea that, that when, when ice covers a lake, you say, oh, it's time for ice fishing. Well, you've got to cut through the ice. I mean, we have these different implements and whatever we can do it now. But on that day, we can't. We don't have access to the deep anymore. It is covered over by this interlocking uh, water that used to be nice and, and uh, fluid and, and moving around. When you consider, and God did this, God did this tremendously. God did it for wisdom. God did it for purposes. Wow. When you talk about liquid water, you have H2O, right? Hydrogen and oxygen together and a wonderful, I was going to say unique, but very, very deliberately designed molecule that has a positive and negative end. I won't get too much into the, the elemental stuff of it. But when the liquid is moving around, all these different combinations of attraction of, of positive and negative go on, and just all this, it's just moving around, right? But when ice is fro- or when water is frozen, when the movement of the molecule slows down and they have to get in line, right? When maybe you have children, you say, okay, get in line, tallest or shortest or whatever. And the ice molecules, or excuse me, the water molecules line up and they kind of like, we have these magnetic toys over here in the children's area that are kind of fun. I mean, y'all come on a Friday night and play with me because I like playing with those things. But you see that they, they, you, they lock in a certain way. 
and you can't, you try to do it this way, or we have another train set, I don't know if it's here or a house, where there's a positive and negative end, and you can't put those, the positives together, you gotta get a positive and negative. The same way with a water molecule. They line up in order, and you'll notice it says that in, back in, in Job 38, 30, 30, the surface of the deep is interlocked. It's almost like those water molecules become interlocked. They become like a, a, uh, like a chain, and this is three-dimensional. You can see this image is just a one-dimensional thing, but three-dimensional, so you have something. And you notice something else about this. They're interlocked, but notice there's a lot of space in between those molecules now. Water will expand when it's frozen. In fact, there's kind of a density of water at freezing temperature and so forth. You can study that on your own. But notice how they're interlocked, but also they expand just a little bit. If water, frozen water, did not expand just a little bit when it's frozen, guess what water would do in water? It would sink to the bottom, and guess what would happen? Then the new layer, whatever's water is on top, will freeze, and then that will sink because it's heavier than liquid water. And then eventually you have a frozen, like an entirely frozen lake or river or whatever it is. That's not good. How's that going to thaw out in the springtime? God in his mercy, God in his wisdom, God in his tremendous wow, he said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, how does it say here? I'm going to cover the surface of the deep with an interlocking bit of frozen ice that's going to float on top of the water, lock everything down below, protect various beasts from getting too cold, right? Fish, they can't be frozen, that's not unless they're in your freezer. But God protected by this water, God protected the entire life on earth by the simple fact that the water molecule blocks and expands when it's frozen. Wow. Tremendous. How did God know that? Well, because he made it. He's the one who designed all these things. God manages the water precisely, just maintains everything. The frozen water, he just does these things so tremendously. Verse 31, he changes and now talks about stars, cosmology. He's talking about the wonderful, uh, tremendous, beautiful, which I had pictures of, which I can't see, I have to look it up online, stars that he makes. And he mentions at least two constellations and maybe a third here in verses 31 to 33. God, God asked Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the statutes of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? No, I don't, but you must, you do. You can bind, you can loose. You are the one who knows these wonderful constellations that you've put. Now these names are not what the Hebrew text says. These are Greek and, and, uh, and Latin, I think both, both of them are Greek names here, Pleiades and Orion, but they are known constellations. Uh, and even in verse 32, it talks about another constellation. These are groups of stars that we can, we can tell. There's a difference between a constellation and an asterism and a star cluster. Pleiades is a star cluster. It's, it doesn't look like an animal, that's typically, or a person constellation. We can kind of see that looks like a, a horse or a... Or a bull and a Taurus, or, or that looks like a hunter, right? Orion. Well, the Pleiades don't look like anything other than a wonderful group of stars with a little bit of dust going on in there. There are anywhere from six to 12, uh, variously counted and, and, and uh, explained, stars in this Pleiades star cluster. In, and this, this cluster travels throughout the galaxy together. It's just, that's why they call it a star cluster. And God says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? He's talking about what keeps these constellations together. 
the chains of the Pleiades, the cords of Orion. Can you do this? Can you bind them? Did you, did you do that in the beginning? You said, oh, there's a nice kind of looking group of stars. I think I'll keep those together for a while. No, you had no power over that, but I did. I was the one who bound those. And by the way, can you loose what I have bound, the loose the cords of Orion? Job says, no, I can't do that, but you can. The ideas of binding and loosing, we see that elsewhere in Scripture, actually a couple times in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 16, uh, that God entrusted the power to bind and loose to Peter. And again, in, in chapter 18 of Matthew, he talks about binding and loosing. It has to do with an exercise of authority, exercise of, wow, you have the power over these things. And God says, look, I'm binding and loosing right here. I have power over the stars in the heaven. And he says specifically the Pleiades and the Orion constellation. And so we see that, that uh, this Pleiades thing has to do with, uh, again, seven, they're also called seven sisters or uh, the seven maidens, by the way. Uh, car company in Japan uses this name, uh, the seven stars, seven sisters, even though they only have six because of various reasons. But it's Subaru. Subaru, even you look at a, the logo, has Pleiades, essentially, kind of uh, stylized a little bit. But they remember and celebrate the constellation that God put there that is bound together, moving together. If you were to take a telescope to Pleiades, which is visible by the naked eye, but if you put a telescope on it, you could actually discern, if you counted them all up, over a thousand stars. You think, good grief. In that one star cluster? Yeah, we can see about uh, six, maybe up to 14 easily discernible ones. But these wonderful stars are traveling together throughout the galaxy, but they are far away, 445 light years uh, from Earth, and just tremendous. They're traveling together. Orion is even a little bit farther. In fact, all the different stars of Orion, how many are there? There are the stars of the body of Orion. They range from 243 to 1,000, 1,300 different light years away. So this, what we see is, if we put, put it on the side, we'd say, wow, this is tremendous. How in the world does God keep that together? There are two things, and you can take this too far perhaps, but there are two things unique to Pleiades and Orion in that, yes, the stars are moving, and over millions of years they're going to separate and move and, and do things. But whereas, like Ursa Major, the Big Bear, Little Bear, the, these different constellations we look at, they're going to kind of stretch out, and over a period of time we're not going to be able to discern that pattern that we could see right now, different than Pleiades and Orion. We will be able to see and discern the constellation for millennia, millions of years. Hopefully the Lord doesn't take that long to come back. But the point is, God has put them together for a long time. Job, there's nothing you can do to separate them. There's nothing you could ever uh, accomplish to affect what's going on light years, millions of miles away from you, trillions of miles away from you. You can't even do this. But I have done these things. Verse 32 says, Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? It could be, as he's talking about the Pleiades and Orion and here, it could be he's talking about the constellations, but even just the, the well, the constellations of the zodiac. You think, oh, that's astrology. No, astrology has come so much after this fact. It's a pagan idea that somehow the stars influence what's going on on earth. That's not what's going on. God has set the stars in heaven, and he has, has explained that in the course of a year, a solar year, the sun, as we look at it, will we'll travel through these, these 12 different 
signs or constellations of the zodiac. Zodiac just means a circle of animals, a circle of living beasts. And so it's not astrological stuff we're talking about. It's just astronomical. This is what happens every year. The sun does this navigation, well, from the Earth's perspective, does this navigation through these constellations. And he says, can you lead forth a constellation in its season? There's a seasonality to it, 12, that's four, but multiply by three, you get 12 constellations, 12 months. We see the different seasons of the year. God says, I've done this. And why does he talk about stars in relation to water? And he's going to talk about weather again here in just a moment. Because looking at the stars, you can tell what season it is. And hey, there's Orion coming up this way, or now we can't see Orion. So that means a change in the weather. Not because Orion caused it, not because Pleiades, well, affecting the... No, it's because that's what time of year it is. And we know that it's, it's September because this is what the, star, the sky state, skyscape looks like. God is the one who leads forth these constellations, brings them out, guides the bear with her satellites. Talking about another satellite. Verse 33 says, Do you even know why this all happens? Do you know the rules, the regulations, the protocol, the, the statutes of the heavens? It's not that they, that the heavens have interaction over us it's not that the stars affect us and you know depending on what 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 uh constant what uh, zodiac sign you were born in that that means certain things for you did you know because of the movement of the stars and, and and the earth and all this stuff going on the signs of the zodiac have changed over the years and so from you know we still call it based on the old reckoning this but taurus and all these things are different now but God is the one who has set. He has not only known the statutes, but he has fixed their rule. Not that they rule, not that they influence the earth, but that God affects them and they influence, or excuse me, they indicate what's going on in the earth in terms of climate and so forth. Lastly, sorry for that belabor. Would have been much nicer with the pictures. You could have kind of zoned out and looked at the pictures and said, listen to me. But weather in verses 34 to 38. Can you raise your voice up to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? No. Can you call down rain? No. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has given wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding of the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of heaven when the dust hardens into a mass and the clouds stick together? There are many societies around the world who have various incantations or rituals and so forth to call down rain from heaven rain dances and so forth and god says really can you can you really do that can you raise your voice and say rain come on down can you raise your voice up to the clouds so that an abundance of water comes down no we really can't do that this idea of raising your voice is used several times in scripture it talks about uh raising your voice in alarm remember potiphar's wife raised her voice a couple different times she says that it can be in a raising your voice in gladness and praise and just adoration dedication to the second temple for example you know raising their voices it seems here to reference to as it does other cases as well a declaration you know you raise your voice hey <clears throat> clouds i want you to rain and nothing happens because you don't have any power over that. Can you raise your voice so that the clouds will listen to you, so that an abundance of water will cover you? No, you can't do that. What about lightnings? Can you send forth those lightnings and that they may go and say to you, here we are. There are several times in Scripture, maybe you know this Hebrew word, it's hineni, hineni, here we are, actually hinenu, here we are. But we see this, for example, in Isaiah 6 when God is saying, you know, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, 
here I am, or here am I, Lord, send me. Uh, we see this several different times in Scripture where somebody presents themselves for a mission. And you get this idea, really? You can make lightning present it themselves to you, and that you say, okay, you go over there, you go over there, you strike that maple, no, 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 not that maple tree, the other one. And you think, good grief, this is lightning. What do you have to do with lightning anymore to make them understand? You can't ever do that. But God does. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are, that they would do God's bidding, to God's purposes. Tremendous idea. Verse 36 is kind of hard to understand. I'll give you that. Maybe your translation is a little bit different. Uh, who has given wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Verse 36 uh, has, again, one of the things about Job is that it's written a long time ago, uses some words, really the only, a lot of words in Job are used only one time in the whole of the Old Testament and they're used in Job. And we're not sure, does it come from this root or that root? Does it come from Arabic, Akkadian? Does it come from this language? Does, what in the world is this talking about? And then what does it mean? So this, another way to understand this is that he's talking about uh, who has given wisdom to the, uh, I think it's the ibis, bird. And then the next one says, who's given understanding to the cock, the rooster. And you think, what, how, where are these birds coming in all of a sudden? Well, there's a whole variety of reasons that you could explain it. One is that they are mentioned here because they can not forecast, not uh, determine or influence the coming of rains, but that they can announce changes in seasons. They can know, hey, rain is coming in. Maybe they go into their little shelter or whatever. And so they can announce. And so it could be that they're it's talking about that. Who has given wisdom to the birds that they can know what's going on with the earth or with the sky and so forth? Well, God does that. It's kind of a change, both in this verse and, and going forward. He's changing from the physical world to the to the uh, animal world here at the end of chapter 38 and 39. But God is the one who gives wisdom. God gives understanding to his beasts. He gives understanding to us so we can respond in a, in a fashion that is faithful to him. Verse 37, quickly, who can count the clouds by wisdom? Well, I mean, we can kind of count, count clouds. We can number them, but that's not what he's talking about. Who can set their number? Who can say, I want a dozen, no, I want 13 clouds in the sky right now. God can do that. Who has who can count the clouds by his wisdom? Why are there clouds over here and not over there? Because that's where God put them. That's where that's that's what's going on. Who can tip the water jars of the heavens? And we think really? I mean he's talked about the storehouses of the snow and hail. I mean really there are storehouses of the snow. I thought it was generated right on the spot. Well does that, is God talking about actual water jars, like clay water vessels up in the heavens that he tips over and the water comes out? He, he is, is showing us, look, do you have any idea how these things work? Do you have any influence over how they work? No, you cannot tip over the water jars of heavens when there's need for them. Again, remember back up in verse 34, can you raise your voice to the clouds? Can you bring rain down when it's necessary? And Okay, if you did bring it when it was necessary, could you make sure it goes where you're supposed to send it? Well, I can't. two things you want me to do at once? I can't. Let me just do the when part. Look, I send rain exactly when I want it and where I want it. Verse 38 says, I send rain when the dust hardens into a mass and the clouds stick together. Two different ways you can understand that. Either that's what happens after the rain comes, if you get kind of a clay mess, especially here in Kentucky, when you just, it's just mud and mess or conversely when it's drought 
and these clods stick together. You have just hard as rock, kind of uh, you know, as the ground becomes like brass. The scripture says God sent that as a judgment upon his people. When you obey, I'll bless you, I curse you. If you disobey, I'm going to curse you. I'm going to make the sky as, as brass, this, this, the sky as brass, the ground as hard before you cannot do anything. God is the one who brings the rain to water the earth and bring that hardened mass of the cloddy sticking together stuff into a cultivable, cultivatable, tillable condition. Wow, God does that. God does these wonderful things. Just a couple of verses in, in, in conclusion. Genesis 8 and verse 22. Because we don't have much influence over these things, but God does. While all the days of the earth remain, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. God's promises will continue. All these wonderful things that God has built into creation, God will maintain that until the end of time. We talked about cosmology, we talked about stars. Isaiah 60 verses 19 and 20 says, In that day, future day, no longer... Will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light? But you will have Yahweh for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you, ha- you will have Yahweh for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be finished. That's the day when we look for a great change in the constellations, a great change in the weather phenomenon, a great change in everything about this creation. It's going to be a new creation, and God himself will be our light. God himself will dwell among us, as we sang earlier. Our God uh, will dwell among us. And we recognize God is dwelling among us right now. He is here. He is near. He's ordering His wonderful creation. It's mixed, it's mixed up. It's messed up. It's cursed. It's under the curse. It's yearning for that redemption of the sons of God. And yet, it's pretty neat. It is amazing to consider God's precision and managing, maintaining the whole world. And we can humbly bow before Him and say, God, you are tremendous. You are wonderful. We, we don't even know, we don't know about your creation. But what you've told us, we give praise to you. Job is beginning to get into that condition of, of mind, praising God, not finding fault with him, not contending with him and saying, God, you wronged me. But God, you are right. You're always right. I can trust you. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the message of this, of this gospel, according to Job, and how you are faithful over all these things. We thank you for helping us understand just a little bit more about your creation how you are active, continually active over all things, every aspect, things we don't even know about. You know, and you manage, and you take care of these things for your glory. We thank you for opening our eyes. Help us to study these things more, so much to consider about even the, the molecular structure of water and to say, you did that. That's by your design. That's by to fulfill your purposes across the face of the earth. We're so grateful you have brought us into your family. We know that through Christ our sins can be forgiven. We can be adopted as children into your household and then to praise you, to draw up close to you and say, wow, you are a great, great God. Again, we pray you'd save any here that aren't in Christ, that aren't trusting him for salvation, and please help us all to grow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.